Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. I feel somewhat bad having a Bible study today because uh, sophomores have test week, right? Um, but anyway, we ran into this problem two years ago where we just could not get through the whole Bible in two years um, by taking off every test week. So that's why we're kind of plowing ahead. Uh, we want to have time. I'd like to have more than one hour on the book of Revelation, for example. So anyway, we're just going to keep going. And uh, next week will be one of my favorite topics, and that is the subject of Bible translation. And uh, it's actually a very interesting subject. Uh, which is the best English translation of the Bible? Well, that's going to be the minority uh, discussion. The answer is there isn't one. But uh, anyway, it'll be uh, interesting just to talk about that and the subject of Bible translation. And the book of Ezra is a perfect segue, as we'll see, for that subject. So let's pray as we begin. Dear Father, we ask that we would come into your presence just now, that you would open the, the curtain of these two books, that we would see your actions behind the scenes. Help us to understand this great controversy better and to understand how prayer works. Help us to align our will with yours to finish this great controversy. Amen. Well, we're coming to the very end of the Old Testament. The last two weeks, we've gone through Zechariah and Haggai, who were prophets. Remember, the people are just coming back to rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, sometime later, 56 years later, Ezra and Nehemiah come along to help the rebuilding process. So it's all part of this same uh, movement that was going on. And so just as we go through here, a timeline. Uh, remember we said there were three invasions of Jerusalem. Uh, the last one in 586. So we have roughly this 70-year period of time from when the invasions began until Cyrus gives his decree to return. Okay, so we've been talking about uh, Haggai and Zechariah and the two prominent men during this period of time, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And uh, sometime later, about 40 years later, we have the book of Esther, which describes the people that chose not to return, the people that chose to stay um, in Babylon and in, in the Persian kingdom. Okay, and then we have, uh, again, you see quite a time gap here, 70 years or so between Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and then Nehemiah, and then Malachi, uh, the last book uh, chronologically in the Old Testament. So the book of Ezra opens this way. And um, again, there's, there's so much to talk about. These books superficially might not seem very interesting, but I think if we really understand what's going on behind the scenes, uh, these are fascinating books. In the first year that Cyrus of Persia was emperor, the Lord made what he had said through the prophet Jeremiah come true. Two times in the book of Jeremiah, he talks about this 70-year period of time, and then the people would return. Now, here's what we're going to spend most of our time talking about. He, God, moved the heart of Cyrus to issue the following command and send it out in writing to be read aloud everywhere in his empire. This is the command of Cyrus, emperor of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has made me ruler over the whole world and has given me the responsibility of building a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. May God be with all of you who are his people. And we'll read this on in just a second here, but other translations of this, of God moving the heart of Cyrus, some versions say he prompted or inspired, prodded, stirred up the spirit or stirred him up. And this is what I want to talk about. How did God move on the heart of Cyrus to issue this decree. It's an interesting story. So reading on, Cyrus would say, you are to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is worshiped in Jerusalem. 
Then the heads of the clans of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the priests, the Levites, and everyone else whose heart God had moved got ready to go and rebuild the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so then we have Haggai and Zechariah that go out. And we're given the number, 42,360. Okay, really a relatively small group when you consider uh, the exodus out of Egypt and so on, but 42,000 left initially. Now, what I want to talk about is there's this incredible conflict that the early uh, chapters of Ezra describe of what was going on, their great resistance to the rebuilding of the temple and Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 4, the enemies of the people of Judah and Benjamin heard that those who had returned from exile were rebuilding the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. Then the people who had been living in the land tried to discourage and frighten the Jews and keep them from building. They also bribed Persian government officials to work against them. They kept on doing this throughout the reign of Emperor Cyrus and into the reign of Emperor Darius. So Cyrus, his government officials were being bribed, discouraged uh, not to come back and rebuild. So question is, do you, think, um, do you think Satan cares about all this? I mean, is he off at the beach, not really uh, uh, having no interest about whether they re rebuild the temple? Do you think he has anything to do with the resistance uh, that was you know, being stirred up at this time. And I think we have direct evidence that he did. And that's bringing it back, trying to look at this great conflict is, I think, so important. Ezra chapter 5. Now, if it please your majesty, have a search made in the royal record. So the people were disputing and they actually had stopped the building. And so they went back and said, no, 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 Cyrus really did issue a decree. May have a search made in the royal records in Babylon to find whether or not Emperor Cyrus gave orders for this temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. A scroll was found containing the following record. In the first year of his reign, Emperor Cyrus commanded that the temple in Jerusalem be rebuilt. So there's this back and forth controversy. This document is finally discovered and they allow the, the rebuilding of the temple to continue. Now, what's going on behind the scenes? Well, we have to go all the way back now to the book of Daniel. Remember, Daniel lived throughout this entire 70-year period uh, time of captivity. And we have some incredible prayers recorded by Daniel. We tend to think of Daniel as just a book of beasts and times and figures and dates. Um, but there are lots of other interesting parts of Daniel. Notice, Daniel 10, chapter 1. In the third year that Cyrus was emperor of Persia. So we're talking about the same time Daniel had this prayer. We're going to come back and read the prayer. But notice the response to the prayer. The angel said to me, and we know from Daniel 8 that this is the angel Gabriel, Daniel, God loves you. How'd you like a, an angel to come to your bed at night and say, Daniel, God loves you, or insert your name? That would be pretty incredible. Daniel, God loves you. Stand up and listen. Daniel, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayers ever since the first day you decided to humble yourself in order to gain understanding. I have come in answer to your prayer. Okay, so we then want to read what prayer was this that Daniel had that would seem to stir up an angel to come down and talk with Daniel. And so we go back to Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of his reign, this is 539 BC, and we'll show the chronology and why that's important. I, Daniel, was studying the sacred books. He was reading the book of Jeremiah and thinking about the 70 years that Jerusalem would be in ruins, according to what the Lord had told the prophet Jeremiah. And I prayed earnestly to the Lord God, pleading with him, fasting, wearing sackcloth and sitting in ashes. And Daniel repented and for his sins, for the sins of the people. And he pled with God 
that the people would be allowed to return to Jerusalem just as the prophecy had predicted. So he has this prayer, and then in response, this angel comes to Daniel. So again, we said that was 539 BC. The Edict of Cyrus was 538 BC. So this was just a short time later that Cyrus issues this decree. And the point that I'd like to make is that the, the prayer of Daniel was vitally important for all of this to happen. Um, prayer really does make a difference. And um, we'll, we'll try to make a case for that. So again, going back here to Daniel chapter 10, this angel comes and says, Daniel, God loves you. And I've heard your prayer. I've come in answer to your prayer. And now the angel is going to describe this conflict that has been going on. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with this passage, but it is quite incredible what is described here. Okay, Gabriel would describe the angel prince of the kingdom of Persia. Some versions say the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Who's that? He's opposed to Gabriel. Opposed to me for 21 days. And Daniel wondered why his prayer wasn't answered. And the angel says, well, there's this, this thing that's been going on here. Then Michael, who's that? One of the chief angels came to help me. And now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. Who's that? After that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. Who's that? There is no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. Uh, it's interesting, the guardian angel who went with the um, Israelites through the, through the desert, Paul would say that that was none other than Christ himself. But he is responsible for helping and defending me. Now, isn't it kind of interesting, Gabriel? I mean, do we think he... Uh, would be a pretty powerful angel. And Gabriel here needs help from Michael in his conflict with this spirit prince or the angel prince of the kingdom of Persia and Greece. Um, and this is just fascinating. It's, it's meant to uh, open our minds, certainly Daniel at the time, to this conflict that is going on behind the scenes. And the conflict, I believe, is on the mind of Cyrus, who is you know, pondering, should he issue this decree or not? And so Daniel prays, he aligns himself with God's will, clearly, which was that people should return. And then we have this battle back and forth, not a, a battle of strength. I mean, God has all strength. This is not an issue of who has the power. Uh, this is an issue of uh, free will, which we'll explain a little more. So who is this prince? Well, uh, I would like to suggest that... Um, well, it's an angel that this certainly could be and likely is referring to Satan. Jesus would refer to Satan as the prince of this world who will be driven out or the prince of this world is coming and the prince of this world now stands condemned. So this kind of language, yes? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question um, uh, in terms of there being two different angels and I don't know. Uh, we just have, yeah, two different personalities there. Um, what I see this to us is just an invitation. Hey, there is a great, great battle going on behind the scenes. You know, the book in Revelation describes Michael throwing out the great dragon and all of his angels. And so uh, our eyes, our spiritual eyes, are frequently just not open to anything except for what we see uh, right around us. But there is uh, very much something going on behind the scenes. Um, who's Michael? Well, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't argue with anyone who disagreed, but let me just give you one possible perspective on who Michael uh, might be referring to. Michael is referred to as one of the archangels. In Daniel 12, the great angel Michael, 
who guards your people will appear. Michael is always used in terms of a, a conflict, in, in conflict with Satan frequently. In Jude 9, we read that the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, so he's in conflict with Satan, and it so often has to do with the, uh, the resurrection, in this case, the resurrection of Moses. Revelation 12, we just referred to this. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, who fought back with his angels, but the dragon was defeated, and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. So Michael is always in conflict with Satan from beginning to end. Now, we said Michael's involved in the resurrection. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 4, there will be the shout of command, the archangel's voice, the sound of God's trumpet, and the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Those who have died believing in Christ will rise to life first. And in Daniel 12, the great angel Michael, who guards your people, will appear. Many of those who have already died will live again. Now, just what's interesting here is Michael is involved in the resurrection of these people, but in other places, for example, John 5, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will come to life. And the time is coming when all the dead will hear his voice and come out of their graves. Uh, I personally like the uh, interpretation that Michael uh, is a name for Jesus. The name Michael actually means, uh, it's a question really, which is who is God or what is God like? And uh, my personal opinion is that the whole great controversy surrounds that question. What is God like? It is a controversy over the character of God. So appropriately, Michael has a name uh, that conveys that meaning. But anyway, we, so the angel comes and describes, I've come in answer to your prayer, and then opens up Daniel's mind to this fight that he has been in over the mind of Cyrus to bring the people back. So again, who are we really fighting against? And uh, so much uh, this, this great controversy theme is so prevalent, especially throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about putting on all the armor, for we are not fighting against human beings but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. Uh, that's the real conflict. So cosmic conflict theology. Uh, we'll have a lot more time to talk about this, but I think it explains so much. I mean, what is probably the biggest issue that people have that causes them to reject um, a God or Christianity at all? And frequently, it is the problem of pain and suffering. If God is all-powerful and if God is all-good, uh, why do children starve to death? If God is all-powerful and God is all-good, why do we all suffer and die? I think that answer to that question uh, could really only be satisfactory uh, if we've taken in the larger perspective of this great controversy. And we need to have a lot more time to talk about that. For example, let's just very quickly go through a few stories that it's just so helpful if we put it in a larger setting. The flood. What goes through your mind when we think about the flood? Well, God just wiped out the whole world and we were troubled by that picture of God. Well, we go back, we read what is actually described. Noah had no faults and was the only good man of his time. He lived in fellowship with God, but everyone else was evil in God's sight and violence had spread everywhere. And it's repeated later, the Lord said to Noah, go into the boat with your whole family. I found that you are the only one in all the world who does what is right. Now, do you think that's an exaggeration? Were there thousands of righteous people right before the flood? Do you think Noah was the only righteous man? Well, how many got on the boat? 
One, one man and his family. I mean, if God had known there were, he had thousands of people, he would have built you know, a whole fleet of ships, right? I mean, God was down to one man. So in the great controversy setting, uh, Satan had almost won. I mean, what do you think? If Noah had died and now God has completely lost contact with the human race, uh, do you think we'd be here? I mean, God loses contact entirely with the human race. What happens? Self-destruction. I mean, it would have been over. Satan would have won. So God is down to one person. So what does he do? Has Noah preach a message for 100 plus years? Anyone could have gotten on the boat. I mean, were the people that got on the boat, uh, you know, were they saved because they were good people? Ham? I mean, so no, anyone could have gotten on the boat, but no one did. Okay, so God had to rescue the last person uh, because the avenue for the Messiah to come uh, would have been blocked otherwise. So really, I'd rather prefer to see the flood as kind of a, a God intervening in this great controversy sense, uh, in a rescue mission sense, rather than as a mission of destruction. Oh, well, we just read on. We have this prophecy in Genesis 15. And the Lord told Abraham that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. They'll be slaves there. will be treated cruelly for 400 years. And after four generations, your descendants will return. Uh, do you think Satan pays any attention when God says something like this? I think he cares. He listens. 400 years later, roughly, right on time, what happens? The Pharaoh, who was not sympathetic to the Jews, issued this decree. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, kill the baby if it is a boy. Um, do you think Satan influenced him at all? Uh, is it possible Satan even thought that the Messiah was to come around this time? I don't know, but there was a decree, kill all the baby boys, and I think if we imagine behind the scenes, we see this conflict and Satan is trying to block God at every opportunity. The story with Cyrus. I mean, Cyrus was named by name hundreds and hundreds of years before there ever was a Cyrus. In the book of Isaiah, God would say, I say to Cyrus, you are the one that will rule for me. And he repeats it again and again and again in the context of God saying, I can predict the future. Your false prophets can't. And let me give you some evidence. And so he lists the name of Cyrus by name multiple times. And so God is really laying his cards on the table. There will be a man named Cyrus and the people will come back. And Satan again tries to intervene uh, to, make that, to, to prevent that from happening. Daniel 9, we have this prophecy. We don't have time to go through and explain it. But this one is fascinating. Listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, this is Ezra and Nehemiah stuff. Until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. And after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And when Jesus died... Were the disciples just uh, praising God for this wonderful revelation, what Jesus accomplished on the cross? No, they were in depression. It was all lost. They didn't understand. So this timeline here is again pointing us forward to the time of the Messiah. And so again, I think it is not coincidental that we have another death decree. Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its neighborhood who were two years old and younger, just like Moses. So certainly he was warned by the, the three magi that came. But again, I see Satan behind the scenes, always trying to counter what God is doing. And uh, it's just unfortunate that the Bible uh, does not many times 
explain it in depth. What is going on behind the scenes? The book of Job is an entire book that explains it behind the scenes. But I think this passage in Daniel is trying to do that as well. So the issue here really I see as kind of a three issues. God's will, our freedom, and a cosmic conflict. Now, um, God's sovereignty has been greatly emphasized in, in recent times. God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. And so this is why for some, the problem of evil, well, we even incorporate that into God because if God is all-powerful, well, then even the bad stuff, it must be God's will as well. But let's just bring up a couple verses that might uh, challenge that just a little bit. Jesus would say, in the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Referring to children. Now, so that's God's will for every child. Every child grows up and becomes an adult. Um, is God's will done? Will every single person who's been a child enter the kingdom? Well, it's God's will that they enter the kingdom. And to say it more directly, here in Second Peter, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Will everyone repent? Will everyone be saved? Will God's will be done? No, God's will is that everyone will be saved. Everyone will not be saved. God's will is not done. God wants to do this, but because of, again, our free will choice to reject God so often, God's will is blocked. God is absolutely sovereign. It's, this is not a limitation on his power, but he does not override our free will, which is why God's will is so frequently not done. And uh, it's so liberating to people, patients frequently. I mentioned this story last year, but a, a lady that I was seeing for chronic headaches that began after her son was killed in a car accident, uh, driving to college, first day of college, or week before college, is driving to college, was killed. And uh, I'd been seeing her for some time for her headaches, and you know, she'd never had headaches in her life. And she never really opened up to me until finally one time she said, uh, you know, it all began, and she told me the horrible story about her son killed in this car accident. And then she summed it up by saying, well, the only thing that keeps me going is to believe it's God's will. Now, did God will that her son was killed in a car accident? Her husband was a pastor of a church, and it was God's will. And so in her mind, this incredible conflict of a God of love who willed her, her uh, son to die in a car accident. And it, it was very liberating for her to see, uh, you know what? God does not go around uh, arbitrarily zapping people. Uh, this is not God's will. What we see when we turn on the news is not God's will. God is all-powerful, yes, but it is not God's will. So true love gives others the freedom not to give love in return. And that is how this problem began in the first place. I mean, God could have made us all like animals, obedient, not capable of rebelling, but he gave us intelligence, and love requires the ability not to return love. I mean, otherwise God would have just zapped Lucifer in the very beginning. Uh, anyone rebels, God would just execute you. You're not free to rebel. We are free to rebel. So we have this, this freedom uh, very much at play here. God does not interfere with our free will. 
And so this is why prayer is so critically important. In James 5.16, the prayer of a good person like Daniel has a powerful effect. And prayer, uh, I think we underestimate really uh, the power involved here because when we have a free will choice, align ourselves with God's will, uh, spectacular things begin to happen. We see Daniel aligning himself fully with God's will. And I mean, an entire empire is... uh, practically overthrown uh, because of it. So just a little bit on prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us how to pray, and we repeat it so often in the King James Version that I think uh, sometimes, at least I didn't really hear the meaning. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So Jesus, when he would teach us how to pray, would say this, hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? Well, read it in another version. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. What is name? It's character. First thing Jesus would teach us to pray, may your name, may your character, may who you are be magnified in the world. Uh, Wow, that is a prayer that is in harmony with God's will. Jesus came to reveal God's name, his character. That's the purpose of Jesus' mission in coming. And he would even tell us in prayer, this is what you are to pray for. Boy, we're really aligning ourselves in God's will when we pray a prayer like that. And it would go on, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So where is God's will being done? In heaven. We are to pray that God's will be done on earth. When we read about uh, children being raped and so on, we have to say that is not God's will. We are to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, Daniel prayed, I think right on the mark, exactly what was in harmony with God's will. So when Jesus would say, if you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. And we think, boy, if I just repeat the words in the name of Jesus, excellent grades or whatever. Um, um, No, if you ask me for anything in my name, which is character in harmony with my character, I will do it. Now, I'm not doing justice to the subject because we all suffer. We all die. We see incredible things of injustice that happen, and we wonder, why doesn't prayer work? But it does work. And I'm just trying to open a little bit of a window here of the importance of aligning ourselves with God's will and praying for things that are in harmony with his character. Jesus came to show us the way. Jesus is fully God, but yet fully human. And Jesus really laid aside the three omnis when he came. Was was Jesus omnipresent? No, he would say things like, I've not yet ascended to my father. This is a time, place uh, kind of relationship here. He's not everywhere. Was he omniscient, all-knowing? No, about the second coming, he would say, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Was he omnipotent? Well, he would say the son can do nothing. I can do nothing by myself. So Jesus came to really to show us the way to live. Okay, did Jesus pray? Boy, did he pray. Uh, Just as a a few examples here. Uh, In Matthew, after sending the people away, he went up a hill to pray by himself. In Luke, he went up on a hill to pray and spent the whole night there praying to God. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would tell his disciples, sit here where I I go over there and pray. And in the book of John, we have a whole long chapter, which is just a prayer of Jesus. So why would Jesus need to pray? I mean, he's God in human form. Now, he is 
I mean, he needed to pray. He needed to perfectly align himself. Jesus was always perfect, but to perfectly align himself with his Father and with his Father's will. And he came to show us that is the way. So just as one example of a prayer, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you to separate the good from the bad as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff, but I have prayed for you. Simon, that your faith will not fail. Did Simon's faith fail? It sure did. Jesus prayed. Do you think Jesus prayed that Simon would let him down, that he would betray him three times? Don't you think Jesus was praying that Peter would see the kingdom for what it really is? It's a kingdom not of this world. We don't chop people's ears off in my kingdom. Um, and he warned Peter so many times about what would happen. He really did everything he could for Peter. He prayed for Peter that he would not fail. But Jesus' will was not done. But notice, we just read on. And when you turn back to me, he knew he would let him down. When you turn back to me, you must strengthen your brothers, which he did. Okay, so we see Jesus here struggling in prayer, uh, trying to accomplish uh, mighty things. Uh, maybe I won't read this whole passage, but before sin, I mean, we, we have this incredible commission from God who said, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature, our character, so that they be responsible for the fish of the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, earth itself, and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. He created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. So essentially, God said, look, it's your planet. And he gave Adam and Eve this uh, power, uh, dominion, and essentially they handed it over to Satan. And so what happens is then, again, when we align ourselves, we come into agreement with God, we are really trying to take back the kingdom, in a sense, on earth. Now, if this will work, it's going to be a little bit loud. So uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie uh, Bruce Almighty. Okay, we shouldn't get a lot of our theology from Hollywood, but uh, this is a really interesting clip that I think illustrates uh, what, what I'm trying to explain here. All right, so Bruce here has complained that it's just not fair, and God is no good. And uh, so God, here played by Morgan Freeman, says, okay, you be God. Okay, and here are the rules. Come, take a closer walk with me. Let me explain the rules. Rules? Yeah, you left in such a rush, I didn't get a chance to explain. Two extra fingers freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> I just figured I'd get your attention. <laughs> I did the same thing to Gandhi. He didn't eat for three weeks. <laughs> anyway, here's the deal. You have all my powers. Use them any way you choose. There are only two rules. You can't tell anybody you're God. Believe me, you don't want that kind of attention. And you can't mess with free will. Uh-huh. Can I ask why? Yes, you can. That's the beauty of it. Enjoying your party? Nothing like spending quality time with great friends, huh? Grace left me. Yeah, I know. She'll take me back. She'll take me back, right? Would you take you back? How do you make somebody love you without affecting free will? 
Welcome to my world, son. You come up with an answer to that one, you let me know. Now, he's just been moving the, the moon in space and the stars, so now he's going to try to use his power in a different way. Yeah, I got to go. Wait! Uh, how do you feel now? Have you completely lost your mind? What, are you drunk? Yeah, I'm drunk. Drunk with power. Yeah, I know, free will. Okay, and just one more here, the end of the movie. I want you to decide what's right for me. I surrender to your will. Kneel down in the middle of a highway and live to talk about it, son. But why? Why now? Bruce, you have the divine spark. You have the gift for bringing joy and laughter to the world. I know, I created you. Quit bragging. <laughs> See, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's the spark. Go ahead. Use them. Um, Lord, feed the hungry and bring peace to all of mankind. How's that? Great. If you want to be Miss America. What do you really care about? Grace. Grace. You want it back? No. I want her to be happy. No matter what that means. She deserved from me. 
I want her to meet someone. Who'll see her always as I do now? Through your eyes. Now that's brown. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get right on it. So again, the point is, and what I see going on with Daniel here is, wow, now that's a prayer. And uh, when, again, aligning ourselves in harmony with God's will, God's character, and we pray, then I think in that context, God can say, you know, Satan, out of the way. I am going to act. And we see what happened. So... Maybe just as a last uh, a couple slides here, skipping forward to Nehemiah, just because it ties in so well. Nehemiah, you know, is the king's cupbearer, and he prays. Listen now to my prayer and to the prayer of all your other servants who want to honor you. Again, what did we just say? That's to honor God, that his holy name is seen throughout the world. So he is, again, he's in harmony with that kind of a prayer. Give me success today and make the emperor merciful to me in those days, I was the emperor's wine steward. One day, four months later, again, he asked God, give it to me today. But four months later, when Emperor Artaxerxes was dining, I took the wine to him. He'd never seen me look sad before, so he asked, why are you looking so sad? And as the story goes on, of course, he allowed Nehemiah to go back. He supported him. So again, we see prayer uh, working in a, in a very powerful way. So we're going to come back and start uh, just with a few verses in Ezra next time because as the people go back and they decide, hey, let's read the Bible. And guess what? No one understood Hebrew. And so we had to have a translation of the Hebrew Bible uh, into Aramaic so that people could even understand it. And that's kind of a good segue for Bible translation. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, once again, we ask that each one of us would fully align ourselves with your will. Help us to see the world as you see the world and help us to realize that uh, uh, we actually can have a great impact for good in the world. Um, help us to pray as we should. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>